Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is John Najarian, options trader, former football player, and host of CNBC's Halftime Report. We talk about traditional trading, options as a hedging vehicle, and how everything has changed with retail speculative gambling. John also tells us about how he transitioned from being a linebacker to an options trader, the commonality between sports and trading, and the addictive endorphin rush of trading. John is an accomplished traditional trader who's made a lot of money in the industry after a football career. His perspective on what's going on in the stock market is very interesting, and he understands the dynamics of what's going on. As he shares in this interview, he takes trading very seriously and counts discipline and aggression as the main character qualities that have helped him be successful. I hope you gain an appreciation of what trading is really like in this interview. John Najarian, how's everything going? Jim, it's going pretty darn well right now. I must say, it's I'm surprised how well things are moving along, not just in the cryptoverse, but in the markets and in reopening the country, in the vaccinations. And I guess in a way, they're all sort of tied together, Jimmy. Mm, you're feeling optimistic about it. Tell me more. What makes you say that? Well, the biggest impediment obviously, of the last year, and it's no secret, we've all just been talking about it endlessly, is the fact that people were dying in large numbers because of the coronavirus. And ways that we chose to deal with it have impacted economies around the world. We didn't know how quickly things might recover. And we obviously had no idea that the markets would respond so positively. Because if you ran that scenario of 2020 by anybody who's ever traded on Wall Street, they would have said the markets, Jim, would have been upside down. We'd probably be down 40 to 50%, and maybe it takes us a decade to recover. And instead, we stopped as soon as we hit that critical you know, selling point, and it was just a turn and burn to the upside. And we in six months, we were hitting new highs again. So that's a pretty amazing response and certainly a lot different. And probably because, Jimmy, it was self-induced. I mean, not the virus, but the reaction and the shutdowns of economies around the world. That was, you know, that was us doing it. It wasn't the financial crisis where people hoarded money and, you know, sat there, you know, worried about their home being repossessed and all the rest. It was just well, we're going to shut this down and we're going to put rent and other things on the back burner for a while. And eventually people will start coming out of it. And knock on wood, it's happened a lot faster than we thought. Yeah, that's an interesting analysis that this wasn't necessarily triggered by like subprime mortgages or anything like that, but it was ultimately self-induced. What, what do you think happened? Why didn't we completely tank the markets and everything go crazy? Massive stimulus. <laughs> Massive <laughs> stimulus. I mean, you know, in the financial crisis, Jim, you probably remember a program known as TARP, mm. Toxic Asset Relief Program or something to that effect. And, you know, at that time, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, had to beg, beg on his knees, Nancy Pelosi, to pass it through the House because... And that was 750 billion, 750 billion. 
and he had to beg and it took months. And instead, this time, the Fed immediately hit it with rates. They dropped them to zero as fast as, you know, uh, as any government agency has ever gone to work. And then the uh, Congress quickly passed in a bipartisan way, the first, the CARES Act. And that was, you know, the combination of those two was somewhere between three and five trillion dollars, not 750 billion. But again, because of the balance sheet of the Fed, it's almost impossible to know. But Congress certainly threw a ton of money at it and then kind of sat on their hands for the rest of 2021 arguing about how to spend more. And uh, the Fed kept telling them, you got to spend more, you got to spend more. (laughs) And then finally, at the end of President Trump's term, they did spend more. And now we just followed that up with another 1.9 trillion. So yeah, I think when history, when they look back at it, they'll say it was that very fast response was why we turned so dramatically and quickly. And the question, I guess, Jimmy, and I'm you know, hopefully we talk, we worry about that years from now, but the issue is going to be, okay, number one, paying for it. And number two, how much inflation do we create by throwing that much money at a system? Because we're only talking 10 years apart, really, 2008, 2009 financial crisis to 2020. You know, we're 11 years out of that. And yet the, the response was eight times bigger. And now it's been growing since then. So that's where I think we are, Jim. Mm, yeah. And you bring up some good points about sort of the negative externalities of all the stimulus. You're saying something about the inflation that's coming and all of the debt that we're going to have to pay off. Well, how do you think the negative externalities in this case are going to play out? Well, I think the markets and the Fed knows that, as well as the Congress, that had they put more money into the system during the financial crisis, more than the $750 billion, even if they just went back and did another $500 billion or double it up, do a second round of $750, we would have come out of that a lot faster too. It would have still been a long slog, but we would have come out of it faster. This modern monetary theory or MMT you know, is is really in its infancy. You know, this hasn't been tried, Jimmy, time and time again. This is the first time we're really doing everything from almost universal basic income or UBI to um, basically the government trying to really support the entire system by just buying its own debt. I mean, you know, it's really funny when you, when you look at it and see, and it's it goes back to, you know, you being a Bitcoin maximalist, the reason Satoshi, he or they, whatever it is, created it was they were so worried about what would happen if an agency like the Fed and or Congress were to issue so much debt that you take the value of the dollar down dramatically. And, you know, the way I read Satoshi, it's, well, I want something that can't be just diluted and taken down in value unless we have a majority of the whole holders that decide, yeah, that's okay. Let's have more than 21 million coins. Obviously with money, they're not even using ink and paper anymore, Jim. This is just, <laughs> you know, zeros and ones on, you know, computers that are moving this money around. And for all the debt that we issue, 
as we issue it, the Fed's in there buying it. So, you know, literally they're creating this bailout out of thin air. And it's a bit like a magician when they do that. Your question as to what happens when that bill comes due, it's kind of like, are you a fan of the Marvel comic universe or the MCU? Some of it, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, Doctor Strange, at the end of Doctor Strange and throughout a lot of Doctor Strange with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Doctor Strange, there is a discussion between he and this black man who is also part of this secret sect that has these powers that gets them through using these uh, mythical tools and things like that. And he said, the debt always comes due, meaning that you really can't fool Mother Nature. You really can't change the past or the future. You, the debt will always come due. So, you know, in, in DC comics, it was Superman flying backwards around the, the globe fast enough to turn back time, for instance, mm-hmm. caused the earth to start spinning in the opposite direction. Uh, that was their, you know, their way that you could uh, basically move through time. And in the, fa- in the case of the debt comes due, this debt will come due, and it always does. And the question is, you know, for people who are just holding dollars and euro dollars and yen and things like that, eventually, as Margaret Thatcher said, you run out of other people's money. And, (laughs) you know, apparently when you do, you just start printing more money and that debt will come due. There will be either a combination of runaway inflation that they'll have to deal with or the dollar will be worth a lot less, not worthless, as Warren Buffett said, not worthless, but worth less going forward because there's just a lot more of them. I mean, in my business, Jimmy, my primary business, of course, is as an equities trader, trading stock and options. But when you figure what is an asset worth, well, there's supply and demand. And if I have a constant supply and a constant demand, then we're probably at an equilibrium. But if all of a sudden people need more fuel for their cars, for instance, going into the summer driving season, and people are going to get on planes a lot more, well, that's an increase in demand with a static production unless they ramp up production. Prices will go up for whatever that asset is, in this case, fuel. And it happens you know, like clockwork every year. And that's not lost on the energy companies, I'm sure. Since you're down in Texas, you're pretty familiar with that. But when you're talking about supply and demand driving things, you know, that works on everything from GameStop to Bitcoin. And if you have too much supply, which is what we're putting into the market now with printing dollars right now, in in our case, 1.9 trillion of them, when you put that much more into the system, those Unless demand goes up a lot, you've just increased supply. So if demand is constant, then that means price has to drop and that debt will come due. Mm. Well, yeah, there's definitely a debt component and a supply demand that we can get into a little bit. But let's back up just a little bit because you had a football career and now you're into equities and stocks and investing. like. Tell us about that transition. What happened? How, how did you get into this second career after football? Sure. Well, 
I was lucky enough after college that I got the opportunity to play football for the Chicago Bears. Had, uh, I think, four other opportunities. One of them was Kansas City. I think another one was perhaps the Saints. I was a free agent, Jimmy, so I was not that superstar that my brother was. He's six years younger than me, but when I came out of college, I was a really good linebacker, but I was not great. So it was a question of, could I find a team that needed a linebacker and that I could stick around long enough to perhaps become better, maybe even great? That ended up not happening, just like it didn't happen for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. (laughs) And again, I love using analogies like that, but I'm clearly not The Rock. But he had the same sort of issue. He went to Canada, figured if I can stick around long enough, I can be a superstar. And then he got cut from the Canadian football team. Same thing for me. I played four games for the Bears. Mike Singletary had held out on his contract. So when Mike finally signed that contract, I was on a very short leash and a very short timeline before they figured out that Mike was the guy that was going to be the next middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears, not John Najarian. So, but it brought me to Chicago. And for that, I'm forever grateful, Jimmy. I, you know, I really, it was sheer luck. I picked it again as a free agent. Anybody that offers you a contract, you can sign and play there for as long as they will have you. So they signed me and I picked Chicago out of those other four teams that I had the option of going to because I thought their linebackers were really bad. And I know that's a cocky statement on my part because they're obviously professional ballplayers. They're a lot better than me. But when you're coming out of college and you're comparing, you know, Jack Lambert, great middle linebacker for the Steelers or any of the other stud linebackers around the league, no one knew who the Bears linebackers were because they were pretty average. And so, of course, I figured, well, if they're just average, maybe I've got a shot. (laughs) Maybe I could, you know, break into that lineup. So that's why I picked Chicago. And luckily, the city is a fantastic place to live. I kind of fell in love with the skyline and the nightlife in Chicago. So when I got cut, I figured I'm going to stay here. And the guys that came out to watch us practice every day, Jimmy. Those men and uh, mainly men that watched us practice at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I was always kind of scratching my head going, who are these guys? You know, who's done with their day working? Because, you know, Lake Forest is northern suburb of Chicago. That's where the Bears practiced. And that's pretty wealthy suburb. So we're not talking about a bunch of schlubs. We're talking about, you know, more or less the captains of industry out there watching us practice at four in the afternoon. And turns out a lot of them were traders because whether they managed money or whether they were brokers or whether they were traders on the floor, their day ended at three o'clock because that's when the New York bell strikes at 4 p.m. Obviously, Chicago's an hour earlier, so ours is at three, and they're done with their day. So when I was cut by the bears, I said, I know what I want to do. I want to go down to the pits and learn how to trade like these guys so that I could be done with my day at three in the afternoon and out enjoying things and maybe watching a bunch of 25-year-old guys sweat 
and figuring out which one's the guy I should bet on or bet against in the weekend's gambling. Hmm. Wow. And so you started out in equities, I'm guessing like maybe as an intern or maybe like an entry level position. Tell me more about like what that process was like getting into this industry. Sure. Well, so I started off on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange, which is known as CBOE. And I started off there in 1981. So yes, I am that old. Um, (laughs) This will be my, uh, I guess, 40th year this fall that I've been in Chicago and down here on the floor. And I worked, as you say, as more or less an intern, Jimmy. I worked for free for my agent because he had three other traders that were all former pro athletes. And he thought that there was a commonality that he could take advantage of with pro athletes. Number one, they're aggressive. Number two, they're extremely disciplined or they wouldn't have got to where they are because obviously you got to show up for meetings on time. You've got to keep your weight and your physical abilities up. You can't like be some old fat tub of goo or whatever <laughs> and, and be able to do what pro athletes do. So he thought all of that would lend itself well to pit trading. And mm. the missing thing there that you don't know is how will the person react under pressure? Pro athlete, you probably figure they can handle it. Not all of them could, obviously. Otherwise, the whole floor would be pro athletes. And they had to be fairly smart. You had to be able to do somewhat sophisticated calculations in your head. Because at that time, in 1981, they wouldn't let you have a computer on the trading floor. You could have a calculator, but you'd always be last by the time you typed in a number versus just shouting out you know, what a spread market might be. A spread is from one option to another. So in other words, if I want to buy Apple, which is trading, let's say, at 125, somebody might come into the pit and scream, I need a market on the Apple 12 expiration, regular March 125 call spread like that. And you have to shout out what your bid and offer would be for that spread in seconds based on the quotes on the screen. So you might say 35 cent bid, 40 cent offer. And he said, sold 35. And you say, buy it. So now you just bought something for 35 cents and you're going to try to flip out of it and sell it for anything more than that, 36, 40, 45, whatever you can sell it for. And you do that hundreds, if not on busy days, thousands of times a day. And so at the end of the day, you're raw, your throat is sore, but it's like applause every time you make money, Jim. I'm sure you know this. When when you make a great buy for Bitcoin, you know what it feels like to be that guy that bought it on the dip and all of a sudden it's $1,000 higher just over the course of the next few minutes these days. And it's like applause. It's like, you know, cheering. The difference is, of course, pro athletes, you hear it, they're cheering outside in a stadium or indoors. And in trading, it's just zeros on your trading account. (laughs) You know, hopefully (laughs) you're making money and those zeros are getting bigger. You're getting more and more money in your account. And that is why it's so damn addicting to be down on the trading floor because you're just, it's it'd be like for people, I, I think you were a software developer for a while, right, Jim? I still am, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. 
Well, so at one time you probably worked for people, maybe your your own boss now, but it'd be like if your boss was saying to you every, you know, every few minutes, great job, Jimmy, great job. Keep going. Oh, oh my God. Great job, Jimmy. Great. You know, because every time you make money, you're getting that endorphin that, you know, you're feeding mm. that beast that gets you excited about trading. And so that's why it's so damn addictive. Sure, it's addictive because people want to make money and some people can't quit even though they can't do it. There are a lot of people that stick around just because they're saying, well, damn it. If, if this guy's making $3 million a year, I'm just as smart as him. I'm as big as him or whatever. I'm going to, I should be making 3 million a year and you're not, you're missing an ingredient. Either it's discipline to take a loss and or to take profits, or you're just not fast enough, not good enough. And, you know, it's really tough for those men and women who discover that they're not good enough because it really is a tough business to leave when you see how fast you can make money when you're good at it. Mm. All right. So let's back up just a little bit because there is this whole options market and there are a lot of people that make tons of money on it. Can you um, describe what an option is for our audience and why that market exists? I think the, these are questions that maybe a lot of people, yeah, I mean, they might be familiar with options, but don't know like who's actually buying them and selling them and why does that exist in the market? All right. And that is a, the last part of that question is actually the key part, folks, of what Jim said. Why does it exist? Why is it allowed to exist? A lot of these derivatives, options are one of the derivatives that gets a, a lot of attention, but futures are a derivative too. They're allowed to exist because of hedging. If it were just gambling, then it might just be limited to Las Vegas. Until now, in in COVID times, Jim, now they're rolling out DraftKings and Penn Gaming and, you know, Caesars and all the rest have apps that you can use in probably 20 different states right now. And the rest of them will follow because they all need revenue. But for the longest time, the only place you could really gamble was Atlantic City or Vegas. And then, and Reno, I'm sorry. And then they started rolling out Native American casinos and so forth. But as far as trading, the reason you have options eligible as a uh, security is that people can hedge with them. They can speculate with them, yes, and they can gamble. And you've seen that with GameStop and AMC and COS headphones and all that, which is more or less just straight out gambling. None of those companies, especially GameStop and um, cost headphones can possibly justify some of the prices that we've seen this year. But we can get into that in a little bit. An option is, so for instance, when I think an easy way to understand, there's two ways that I usually explain it, Jim. One is a put option. And a put option is exactly car insurance. So you being a big successful Bitcoiner, Jimmy, you're driving around in your... Uh, Mercedes-Benz down there in Texas. And even though you're given, getting crap for driving a foreign car in Texas, <laughs> um, you're driving around in your big old Mercedes-Benz and you want some deductible insurance just in case either you hit something or something hits you. So 
you decide how much of a deductible do you want. Do you want $500 deductible? Do you want zero deductible? Do you want $1,000 or $5,000? The larger the deduction before the insurance company has to take over for the payment, the less they will charge. If you want basically at the money, you know, you just walked out with a $98,000 Mercedes Benz and you want insurance on it from 98,000 to zero in case somebody comes slamming into you and totals your car. Okay, that's going to be expensive insurance. If you want a $1,000 deductible, so that Jimmy Song pays the first thousand, that insurance is a lot cheaper. So that is a put option. The put option is written by somebody. Warren Buffett is a huge seller of puts. He's also the owner of Geico Insurance. So he totally understands that I'm insuring this asset against a fall in the price of this asset. If it falls from 98,000, sticking with that uh, Mercedes-Benz example, if it falls from 98,000 and Jimmy gets hit, it's not totaled, but it has 15,000 in repairs, Jimmy pays me, the insurance company, the first $1,000 and I pay the rest, the other 19,000 for the repair. So that is a put option to the downside. Now, an example for the calls, which is the upside speculation in the market, might be something like Disneyland. When Walt Disney was deciding, you know what, I need Disney World. I'm going to go to Florida and start buying up land. Well, if people know that Walt Disney, which even back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, when he started doing this, if they know Walt Disney wants to buy up a thousand acres or 2000 acres or whatever it is for Disney World, as soon as you know that he's buying that up, the price of your land is going up. You're going to ask for a lot more money. It's no longer farmland. So what he does instead is he sends a bunch of beards, as we call them, people that you don't know who they are down there and they come up to Jimmy and say, hey, Jimmy, you're trying to sell your 500 acres right now for $600,000. Jimmy says, that's right. And he says, okay, how about if I give you $100,000 right now and you give me the right to buy your acreage for $650,000 for a year? I have an entire year to spend deciding if I really want to buy the rest of this. And if I do, I pay you $650,000 less the hundred that I've given you already. And if I walk away, if after a year I don't want it, you keep the $100,000. If you're selling that farmland, that's probably a pretty interesting proposition to you. That's exactly how Walt Disney bought Disney World. He went down there, or he had his minions go down there. And they bid for parcels, 500 acres at a time, 200 acres, without anybody knowing who's buying all these parcels. Because again, if anybody knows, all of a sudden that last parcel isn't $600,000, it's $6 million. So that person has purchased the right to buy that asset for a certain price for a certain period of time. That's what an option is. So a lot of SEC and FINRA, which is the Financial Industry Reporting Authority, that govern what's fair and what's not, have decided that, yeah, that's not gambling. That's really an investment. If you do it that way, that's an investment. So we'll let you bet on the upside of Apple, which is trading for 125. If you think it's going to be 130 by next month, you can buy that option. 
And if it doesn't get there, you don't have to exercise it. But if it gets there and goes to 140, you get to buy it at 130. That would be an example of buying the 130 call a month out when the stock's trading at 125. Hmm. Okay. So it's really supposed to be a hedging strategy, but you mentioned that it becomes uh, it's become largely a speculative vehicle, especially with something like GameStop. When did it sort of become uh, go from a hedging strategy for you know people that want insurance essentially on their stock or who want to stealthily sort of accumulate other stock? Like when did it go from that to essentially what it's become, which is you know a degenerate form of gambling in many cases? I think we, you and I, could trace it directly to the uh, CARES Act to that fourteen hundred dollar check, Jimmy. <laughs> as soon as we're talking about, you know, because, and in some cases for very good reason. So, you know, you work in software, all of a sudden, instead of going in to Oracle or to Microsoft or any big, you know, CRM, any of the big, you know, Salesforce.com, any of the big software plays, all of a sudden they say, hey, Jimmy, stay home. It's not safe for you to come in because of covid we don't want the liability uh, in case you get sick, you're going to sue us. So you can work remotely. So Jimmy says, okay. And, or if you get laid off during that time, furloughed or otherwise, and you've got all of a sudden this $1,400 check and the markets have just dropped by 30 or 40%. Most, uh, you know, I can show you plenty of examples like Carnival Cruise Line went from $22 a share down to eight you know, just cratered because people started saying, nobody's going to get on a cruise again. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, people are, no one's going to get in a big crowded boat with a bunch of people who might be sick. Oh my God. So anyway, same thing with American Airlines, a whole bunch of examples, of course, mainly in hospitality, leisure and or business travel related. Those were the hardest hit industries. Not your industry. Jim. So uh, you think that a lot of people took the stimulus checks and started sort of gambling with it as a way to hedge, in a sense, against, I guess, the you know crazy amount of money printing going on or just because they were uncertain of the future or didn't have anything to do? I think overall, Jim, it was that people got $1,400. They were also getting enhanced benefits every week, I think in some cases as large as $600 of unemployment, and they're stuck at home. So, you know, you can only watch so much Wheel of Fortune <laughs> or, or HGTV or whatever people were watching. And obviously there's there wasn't any going out to theaters, going out to eat or anything else. So I think they looked around at the stock market, they looked at Robinhood, which was the major beneficiary of this because Robinhood is a free trading app. And many people decided, you know what? I'm going to take a shot on some of these stocks, especially since they're 40% off. I can buy Apple down 40%. I can buy, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines down 70% or whatever. And it turned out that making money wasn't as tough as they thought on Wall Street. So Robinhood opened a record number of accounts. I think in the first quarter of 2020, they opened 
close to 12 million accounts, some crazy number like that. No exchange, no broker had ever done that. Not Coinbase, not Morgan Stanley, not Merrill Lynch, not uh, Drexel Burnham. Nobody had ever done that. And the bulk of the people that were pouring in there were millennials. Mm -hmm. And many of them were trading off of tips that they were getting on Twitter, Facebook posts, and then eventually what became what we all follow so much these days, Reddit, you know, with the Wall Street bets crowd, that grew from just a couple hundred thousand people to two million people by December of 2020. And when people started hearing about GameStop starting to run and that these crazy guys and gals over at Reddit, a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, had been touting, totaling a stock called GameStop, which is basically, you know, a place you go to exchange your video games and or buy new video games. They couldn't believe it that they started targeting this in the 20s. And by mid-January, it was in the mid-50s. It had already doubled. And then it took off parabolic from there because all of a sudden, they realized that there was a very large short, somebody who had bet against GameStop over at Melvin Capital, and that they had sold more shares than were available to borrow, which you would think would be either illegal or unethical, and maybe it's both. But in any case, they could squeeze that person who has bet on the stock going down by buying more stock. So they just kept buying, 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 and holding on to it until eventually it topped $500 in February of 2021. And for no justification other than just, well, there's there's an awful lot of demand, apparently. You and I talked about supply and demand. There's a fixed supply. And apparently one of the guys who's on the short side of this trade is more or less short on that supply as all these hodlers came in and started driving the price up and they would not sell until finally Robinhood didn't have enough money to support all the trades they were making. And so Robinhood and other brokers had to shut them down and say, you can't trade GameStop, you can't trade AMC, you can't trade AMCX, you can't trade Cost Headphones, you can't trade any of these names on this platform until further notice. And then they all broke. The fever broke and everything went tumbling back down. GameStop went from $500 to $45 in about a week. It was just an ugly, ugly drop. Well, so that brings up something for me. Certainly like the retail sort of options gambling thing, using derivatives for speculation. I think you're right. Like it became like a thing in 2020, especially with the stimulus checks, a lot of people staying at home. And of course, the free trading, you know, allowed by Robinhood. But the thing that was crazy to me, and I think is, you know, crazy to anybody that was watching the whole saga was that it seemed like institutions were playing the same game before the retail got in, especially hedge funds and so on. Uh, we saw, for example, that the short interest on GameStop was over 100%. There was clearly rehypothecating or naked short selling or whatever you want to call it, where you know these institutions managed to lend out more shares of GameStop than there were supposed to exist. So 
Like, how much do you think was there before, like this gambling speculative streak before retail got in? Well, the speculative streak, I think, was pretty thin. I think the reason that had, I think actually people like myself, Jimmy, we're, we tend to be surfers. And I always define that as it's the same as waiting for a wave. I'm not a big wave surfer. I surf waves up to about five or six feet. My brother Pete is a big wave surfer, but it's the same. You, you know, even with little waves, when you're out there, all of a sudden you can feel the swell starting to lift and then you start paddling and you try to catch that wave. The wave in this case was the hedge funds realized that all these little guys and gals were buying into GameStop. And they realized it because, again, if you have machine learning and AI like we have, you can see the difference between an institutional trade and a retail trade. An institutional trade is measured in the hundreds of thousands of shares. And retail is generally meant in the hundreds of shares, occasionally thousands of shares. Now, there are people like Roaring Kitty or Deep Effing Value that trade bigger than that, certainly. But an awful lot of the Reddit crowd is buying hundreds of shares, not tens of thousands of shares. So what we saw, Jim, was an awful lot of buying of those smaller lots in December into the early part of January. And then I think a lot of the hedge funds started to get the idea because it started to make headlines that Melvin Capital had, was losing billions of dollars on the wrong side of that bet. They had bet that the stock wasn't even worth 20. And all of a sudden it's 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. And they're losing their backside on that trade. And the hedge funds know there's a wounded animal. Just, you know, there's blood in the water. And there is nothing more ruthless than a hedge fund. Not even an ex-wife <laughs> is as ruthless. And fortunately, I don't know about that. But, you know, the hedge funds, they smell blood in the water. They're going to go for it. And the blood in this case was Melvin Capital was the primary short. Like you said, 140% of the shares had been borrowed. And that means sold with hopes of covering them at a lower price. And the hedge funds started buying in then. That's when we started seeing blocks of 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 going into GameStop and they couldn't get filled. You know, you, normally a stock like GameStop, you know, trades a million, two million shares in a day. There were plenty of days in February when it was trading a hundred million shares in a day. And that ain't retail, no matter what, that's not retail. And those guys are also very predatory, Jimmy, as far as they're going to take profits. They're unlike the Wall Street bets crowd where they want to buy it and hurt that trader and just hold on to it. And, you know, you've seen all of that, you know, to the moon and all that kind of stuff on their Reddits and, you know, hold. And they put up all these memes. The whole of Reddit to me is memes. It's memes of, you know, Braveheart. It's memes from Gladiator. It's memes from lots of war movies about holding the line and not giving an inch kind of thing. And that, again, is not a pro trader. A pro trader is there to make money, and that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to make money, move on to the next trade. They weren't there to make money. They liked the fact that they were making money, I'm sure, 
and I know we're I am lumping all of them into one basket, but an awful lot of the Reddit crowd probably round tripped, meaning they were long from 25, 50, 100, 200, and it went to 500 and they didn't sell a share. And it went all the way back down to where they got in practically. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of them got, you know, very, you know, pounding their chest, enthusiastic about it, and then realized as it turned and burned to the downside and went through multiple halts, trading halts to the downside, as people were just dumping it, that they probably had not done themselves a favor by not taking profits when they had them. Mm. Well, so here's the thing. Clearly, GameStop went way off of its fundamentals, right? Like there's some amount of money that a video game rental service or you know, a pre-ordering service or swapping service. I mean, they're a business, they make some money. But like the price just was way more volatile and like kind of unhinged from its fundamental value. And, you know, GameStop is just one example. But it seems to me like the entire market is in some ways like that. And, uh, you know, I had a Preston Pish on, on this podcast not too long ago, and he was saying, yeah, I mean, the P.E. ratios basically make it like you're getting like a 3% return, which is tiny for equities. So what's going on here? Why are the fundamentals and price continuing to diverge in an extreme way with Wall Street bets and all that? But even like normal-ish stocks seem to be going kind of off the rails from the fundamental value. I would go back to that supply and demand, that at least for the time being, Jim. And we've seen days when it hasn't been that way. I mean, for instance, I think this year so far, we've had either three or four days when the Dow has declined more than 600 points, which is a big, huge move. We've seen the NASDAQ moving 2 and 3% to the downside on a given day. And we've also seen it moving up, of course. For the most part, I think it's that there is so much money chasing these stocks, whether they're SPACs, which are these special purpose acquisition vehicles that are the sort of like the new rage on Wall Street, everybody's running a SPAC, to you know the meme stocks we've just gone through describing, COS, AMCX, GameStop, all of that stuff. So I think you can distort for periods of time the price of that stock, but you haven't really changed the valuation. It, the valuation, of course, since stocks don't trade 24-7, unlike digital assets, stocks stop trading for the most part at 4 p.m. Eastern. They may have an after-hours session that lasts about an hour just for stock, not for options. And they trade in the pre-market as well. But again, both of those are very illiquid outside of just the hour prior and the hour after regular trading hours, which is 9 a.m. Eastern to 4 p.m. Eastern. So I think there's an awful lot of trade that people are doing um, that doesn't make sense right now. And they'll get caught from time to time. I'm not rooting for it. I'm rooting for the Joes and Janes that are new to the market. I want them in the market. I love that there are maybe 20 million more traders now than there were at this time last year. And by traders, I mean, you know, retail. I love that they're there. I think it's, to me, Jimmy, it's offensive 
when some people on Wall Street say, well, when your taxi driver or your Uber driver starts telling you about stocks, that's time to get out. Really? Like, you know, Chamath, I think, said, maybe said it best when he said, look, there's an awful lot of very sophisticated people in Wall Street bets. There's a lot of rank amateurs, but there's a lot of sophisticated traders who are using all of the tools at their disposal, which is an information gathering tool, the internet, that is second to none. Now, granted, there's real-time information and there's delayed information, but nonetheless, a lot of those people can do deep dives into finding the best opportunities in the market on a given day. And if you think that just because you went to Harvard or you went to Berkeley or you traded on the Goldman Sachs trading desk, you must be a lot smarter than everybody else out there. You're going to lose because there's a lot of really smart people out there. And some of them are driving Ubers (laughs) and some of them are driving taxis or uh, doing other jobs that, like I say, I think it's just offensive when people say, well, yeah, when the shoeshine boy, which Kennedy famously said, when he tells me about a stock, I know it's time for me to get out. That might have been true back then. It's not true anymore. Yeah, that's something that's uh, interesting and a thread that I want to pull on is that, you know, stock market, especially with Bitcoin and things like that, it's becoming a lot more popular, right? Like uh, it used to be sort of like segregated to the investing class. And nowadays, it's, you know, it's something that pretty much everyone is kind of forced to do because of the monetary policy that we're seeing. How do you think this plays out? Like, are people going to constantly be investing? Is your Uber driver or shoeshine boy going to constantly be, you know, looking at stocks? And is this going to be a permanent feature of civilization going forward? I think the democratization of it, Jimmy, is no person has an advantage over the algorithms. The algorithms that I'm talking about are, you know, the high frequency trading and so forth. They're going to be faster than us, no matter who you are. Even if you're trying to build your own at home, you're not going to do it. You're not going to be faster than somebody who's got a co-located server in the data center uh, in Mawa, New Jersey, or Carteret, New Jersey. You're just not. But as far as if you take your time frame and you say, you know what? My holding period is six minutes, six hours, six days, whatever it is. As long as it's not in the real short term, you can beat and compete with anything on Wall Street. So I think that a lot of people that, as they say, got their beaks wet, you know, got a little taste of it in 2020 and early 2021 are likely to stick with it. Now, granted, there'll be a lot of people that wash out of that 20 million that I cited, you know, could half of them wash out by virtue of complete lack of discipline, meaning they never took their profits, didn't know how to cut their losses, and the broker eventually just closed their account for them. Yeah, I could easily see 10 million of those going away for that reason. That's the single biggest thing that kills traders is the lack of discipline. So whether somebody's an Uber driver, whether they're a construction worker that's out of work and idled and sitting around at home pointing and clicking on the internet, whatever it might be, I think if they don't have discipline, they're not going to be in long. But a lot of them that decide, you know what? I don't need to be a pig. 
if I pick my spots, if I listen to Jimmy about crypto, or if I'm watching John on TV, and all of a sudden I hear John say, hey, DraftKings, I really see a lot of strong activity in here. And we're also seeing social media over on Wall Street bets about this. And they buy 500 shares and it goes up a buck. Not that that always happens, but if it goes up a buck and they bought 500 shares, they made $500. How long, Jimmy, does it take most people in most jobs to make $500? And yet this is available to them on their phone, on their laptop, on their iPad. You know, and I think that really is something that's changed dramatically in the landscape that we're going to see more people trading than ever before. And it's something that I really applaud. Hmm. Well, so getting, you know, circling back to Bitcoin, you know, there's obviously a lot of retail people trading Bitcoin and, you know, alts and things like that. How did you get into Bitcoin? Like what drew you into, you know, I guess our humble abode or, or place where we dwell? Well, I probably made my first Bitcoin trade. Maybe it was 2016. It might have been late 2015, Jimmy. And I bought it and sold it in the same day. <laughs> so I know you're going to say, what an idiot. And yes, what an idiot, because it was around $300. <laughs> and so you can only imagine, you know, that's a $54,000 or $58,000 mistake, depending where Bitcoin is today. But I didn't trade it again, Jim, until 2017, because I just was spending too much time on other stuff. I didn't really focus on it enough. Then I focused on it in 2017. And I was unfortunately one of the people who was kind of caught up in the ICO craze. I didn't buy them, but I was out there working with companies that were doing ICOs. And that's when I kind of saw that, look, Bitcoin is what everybody was funding any of these projects with. And yes, they were using Ethereum for the project itself, but they were all funding based on Bitcoin. And that's when I decided, okay, I got to own some coin. So I started and I was lucky enough. I know you know this guy, Jimmy. Uh, Peter Brigger. Peter Brigger is the founder of Fortress out in mm. Palo Alto. Mm. And one of his friends, Karen Feinerman's brother, if you've ever seen our The Five O'Clock Show, there's a lovely lady on there named Karen Feinerman. She runs Metropolitan Capital. And Karen Feinerman's brother, for a charity, bought dinner with my brother Pete and I that we had donated a dinner pick your wine. We'll go out to dinner. We'll have a great time. We'll bring you on the set, blah, blah, blah. And we've done that for a number of charities throughout the years. Karen Feinerman's brother bought it and his guest was Peter Brigger. So I met Peter. This is 2017. And he was telling me, John, this thing's going to the moon. I own a bunch of it. You should own some. I've got it all in cold storage. When you get it, put it in cold storage. Unfortunately, I didn't listen to Peter and I lost the first batch that I bought. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would be a much richer man today if I hadn't lost that. But luckily, I did take his advice on my next purchases, Jimmy, and put it into cold storage. Haven't looked back. I've added to it on a fairly regular basis on big declines. I'm a buyer on dips. And I don't mean a little dip on big dips like we experienced, as we both know all too well, 
2018, 2019, you know, just ugly dips. Um, was able to buy more, and now I've continued to hold it. So I've I love it. I love what it's all about. I love that you're a maximalist. I am not. I'm not going to fight with you about it, but I think part of it, Jimmy, the reason I'm not a maximalist is Bitcoin, I want to just hold it. But all these other coins, even Ethereum, I want to trade them. And I do trade them. Every day, I trade those coins. And I think it's at least as exciting as trading stocks. And, you know, the liquidity's there. They've made it so much easier to to do real trading on even on, I mean, I use Voyager app, Jimmy, because I'm an investor in their company. They're not paying me to say that, although they do sponsor some stuff that I do, but they're not paying me to say this. I just love the app. It's an app for my phone. I buy and sell 50 different cryptos on it. And like I say, I think that's as much action in there as I get on any stock, including GameStop in equities. Mm. So I guess as a trader, it really pays to sort of pay attention to a lot of these alts and, you know, go in and in and out. I mean, you're obviously very experienced in that regard. I guess that's what you're using it for. Yes, sir. Yep. That is what I use it for. I trade them. Let me see. I'm going to open the app right now and give you a, in full disclosure, what do I own right now? Other than Bitcoin, I own, bum, bum, bum. let's see, Cardano. Uniswap, Doge, Comp, Maker, T-Fuel, Theta Fuel, and gosh, what was it today? I own Raven, and I have one other, I think it's Polycon, Polygon. Um, but, but you're in and out of these positions quite yep, quickly, yep. right? Yeah, Very uh, true. But as of today, the 11th of March, that's what I own. <laughs> and how often do you trade these things, just to give our audience an idea? Every day. Okay. So um, you're, you I do at least one trade? Yeah, I don't necessarily liquidate any of them, Jimmy, but, you know, knock on wood, I've just seen the the wave picking up with Doge. In fact, we do a podcast in the morning, Jimmy, called the Daily Crypto Bite, and we have a Doge of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I know Doge is a crap coin, but, and they're all crap coins, quite frankly. However, except for Bitcoin and Ethereum, but what I like about Doge is that now Mark Cuban's talking about it all the time. Occasionally, Elon Musk talks about it, and there's ATMs for Doge and so forth, which I was shocked at. But I figure, you know, I was lucky enough to get into the thing at 0. 0.007 and ride it up to like eight and a half, nine cents, something like that. Crazy. And then I reloaded just recently in the five cent range and I'm looking for more in Doge. And yes, I know it's a crap coin, <laughs> but, but it's a but trade. It's a trade. Yeah, what, what you're doing is sort of like trading. And because a lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily have a fundamental value, you're kind of, you can put all your trading skill to work instead of worrying about, I guess, maybe the fundamentals that might come back to bite you in a lot of the other equities that you might be trading. Right. And you said that best. And perhaps you also, when you talked about the insane valuations of a lot of these companies, 
a lot of the equities, again, like cost headphones or GameStop, I don't view these as any different. Mm. Um, you know, that yeah, it's crazy that Doge is trading for a nickel and it's crazier if it trades to a dime or 15 cents. But if it does, I'll flip it and uh, look to reload or buy something else. I mean, there are so many of these crap coins, Jimmy, that make big moves. That T-Fuel from yesterday to today, Theta moved, what, 60%? I mean, I can trade all day. And yeah, if I catch an option right, I can make 60% on an option. But you're almost never going to flip a stock for 60%. And yet, you know, here's an extremely liquid coin out there that, you know, we were able to trade for a 60% flip. I'll take that. So you said at near the beginning that that the thing for a trader is a lot of discipline and aggression. Can you describe what that looks like in the context of what you're doing? Sure. So for instance, the discipline most people need most is on how to take losses. And again, I realize I'm talking to a maximalist folks and a hodler. So Jimmy's not a trader. He is a smart man who bought coins right and continues to hold them. And my hat's off to you, Jim. But if you're a trader, you need to take losses. You, If you're a trader, you could never take Bitcoin from 19,000 in 2017 down to 4,000. You go out of business. You know, that's not, you, you will not stay alive if that's what the size of losses you take. We always joke, Jim, that you can't eat like a bird and shit like an elephant. So <laughs> you, if you're taking little bites, meaning if I, you know, if I want to make a thousand bucks a day, or if I want to make 10,000 bucks a day or a hundred thousand bucks a day, I've got to take losses of that same amount. I can't take a $200,000 loss if I'm trading to make a hundred. I've got to cut that loss at a hundred and that put any multiplier on that. If you're a trading to make $200 today, because that's what you'd make if you were working your waitress job or your waiter job, and you just want to make ends meet and make 200 bucks, then cut your losses. If you lose 200 bucks, you cannot take a bigger loss than the gains that you're taking. So my discipline is whenever I lose 50% on my option trade, again, that's not a stock trade, that's an option trade. So if I lose 50%, I cut it. So I'm buying an option for $1 betting between now and next Friday, the DraftKings goes through 70 bucks a share. If I'm buying that 70 option with the stock at 68, I know I have a week to be right, and if that option moves, I'm going to take a profit on a double. If it goes from $1 to 2 I'll take half of that position off, let the rest run for a while. If I lose and it goes from $1 to $0.50, cents, I'm out. I'm out. Cut my loss. Move on. You've got to have discipline on the loss, and you've got to have discipline on taking profits. But again, you can't get so excited about your profit that you take a 20 cent profit and a $1 loss. That does not work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is all pretty enlightening because I think for a lot of people that are coming into Bitcoin, you know, they get into altcoins thinking that they're a trader. And you're obviously somebody that has been doing this for a long time and understands the sort of the discipline it takes, the aggression it takes, the you know, sort of non-waffling that you have to do, the decisiveness with which you have to do everything. 
a lot of people that come in don't really have that. Like, what would you say to those people that are kind of interested in trading or are sort of like wishy-washy traders? Like, uh, what's your advice to them? Well, you don't have to be at the screen all day. If you really want to trade, you've got to be at the screen for a dedicated period of time every day. But if you want to do a little investing, if you want to call it that, in the morning, and you can look at it again during the day as long as you have your stops in so that you can cut your losses and or have your profits taken at certain levels, you can make it. But if you're just kind of doing this on a lark, this will be a very, it'll be just like the guy at the tables at Vegas that doesn't really understand craps or doesn't really understand blackjack or poker. If you don't understand that the house is there <laughs> and those casinos are built as big as they are because the house wins, then you're misunderstanding who you are in the game. You're the chump that they're going to take money from. Now, most of the people sitting around that craps table know a little bit about the odds. On the roulette wheel, same thing. They know a little bit about the odds. There's always one or two that know really well what the odds are, when they should increase their bets, when they should be on different numbers and pulling money off the table at the same time. Because especially with craps, every roll, you know, there's a new number that's hit until the guy finally, the guy or the gal craps out. There's a new number is every single time you roll. So you want to be taking that money off the table. You don't just leave it out there. And the same is true here. You can't be, you can be a part-time trader, but you still have to be just as disciplined as a full-time trader. Mm, that makes sense. All right. Well, this has been an enlightening conversation. Where can people find you? They can find me over at Market Rebellion, Jimmy. Market Rebellion, just like it sounds, we have equities, stocks, technical analysis, cryptocurrency. We do education. We do subscriptions to various products that we've got because what we do is we run algorithms throughout the day looking for chatter on social, looking for accumulations. That's much tougher in crypto to find real accumulations because there's not true price transparency like there is with stocks. You don't really know where coins are trading second by second, the same transparency that you do on equities. That's just because there are so many exchanges, some of which are you know, putting up uh, bogus prints and things like that. You guys, if you're regular listeners to Jimmy, you already know that. But nonetheless, there's a lot to be derived from social. And is the social picking up in a positive way or a negative way? And we're scanning Wall Street bets cryptocurrency trading, all these different subreddits, as well as Twitter for that. And then we're just looking at the block trades that occur, Jimmy, on stocks and options and futures. And we have subscription products for all of it. So I'd say, yeah, go over to marketrebellion.com. And we got to get you out to Vegas, maybe, Jim, where you and I saw each other last time. Mm, indeed. Unfortunately, Tone's not having his conference there this year. So, But we will have to figure out some way to meet again. But thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and enlightening us on sort of like options and derivatives markets and you know what, what's going on. Thank you, Jimmy. My pleasure. Enjoy. Have a great day and keep hodling. 
Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. John Najarian can be found at at John Najarian on Twitter and marketrebellion.com. Until next time, fiat the Linda Est.